Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. People around the world are being pressed to take a view on the way farms are run in one of the most remote provinces of China, Xinjiang. It is here that human rights abuses against Uyghurs are taking place, according to the United States, the European Union and the UK, all of which have responded with sanctions on Chinese officials. Shoppers are also drawn into the debate through a campaign to discourage people from buying clothes made from cotton, which has been picked or processed by Uyghur prisoners. All this has spurred tit-for-tat measures from Beijing, including a backlash against some Western multinationals. There are many angry counterclaims from the Chinese side too, along the lines that it's unacceptable for foreigners to interfere in China's domestic affairs. So what's the impact of sanctions and boycotts? Are they bringing about a change which benefits the Uyghurs? I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Professor Darren Byler, who's an expert on Chinese Central Asia. He teaches at an institution in Vancouver, Canada, called the Simon Fraser University. And as well as writing many articles about the Uyghurs, he's also provided testimony on this topic to the Canadian Parliament. Darren, welcome to China in Context. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The idea of forced labor in cotton fields evokes images of people in chains being made to pick cotton by prison guards before being returned to their cells. I expect to some extent this image that I have in my mind is based on ideas of slaves in the southern United States. Does it have any correlation as to what is actually happening in Xinjiang? Well, yes and no. Um, in Xinjiang, there's a broader range of freedom and coercion than slaves and prisoners were given in U.S. history. Um, but there is a kind of unfreedom that they, they are experiencing that, that is similar. In Xinjiang, people are working in the fields who are villagers that were assigned to work in batches by local authorities. Refusal to do this work or protesting work conditions or underpayment could result in a police investigation and being sent uh, to the camps as a potential terrorist or separatist. Hundreds of thousands of people who have already been detained are even more tightly controlled. Many of them have been to, assigned to work in securitized smart factories, um, and they are checked by automated systems as they move through the factory complex, watched closely by cameras and guards. At times, they're locked in the rooms where they work, uh, but it's, they're not typically shackled like U.S. prison workers might be. It's more the, the technology and a kind of status coercion of being labeled untrustworthy. Um, that is the, the, the things that hold people in place. Um, everyone knows that they could be sent to a camp at any time. Well, the conditions you're describing sound very severe. In 2021, President Joe Biden signed a law which bans imports from China Xinjiang region because of these concerns about forced labor. It's called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and it assumes that all goods from Xinjiang, not just cotton, are made with forced labor. What lies behind the wording of the act? This act places the burden of proof on U.S. companies to prove that products they buy from Xinjiang are not made using forced labor. The thinking here is that because assigned unfree labor is now so widespread in so many sectors in Xinjiang, nearly all products in Xinjiang are affected by it. 
Every county appears to have tens of thousands of Uyghur farmers or Kazakh herders who've been categorized as surplus laborers and, and thus assigned to work in places in Xinjiang and across the country in these unfree conditions. Until the Chinese state allows companies in the West unimpeded access to investigate work conditions, it really can't be said that the things made in Xinjiang meet fair and ethical work standards that are the norm in international society. And there's a parallel piece of legislation in the United States relating to this matter. It's called the Entities List. Can you explain that for us, please? Sure. The Entities List prevents U.S. companies from selling goods or services to companies who've been deemed a threat to U.S. interests. Uh, in response to the Xinjiang emergency, it's been used to target technology companies primarily, uh, those that are involved in the camp and factory system. Uh, and here I'm thinking about companies like Hikvision or Hikvision and Dahua, which are companies that have quite a large presence in the UK and the world. Um, digital forensics companies that do the scanning of people's phones um, and decide who should be detained as well have also been listed. Companies responsible for coercive collection of DNA and voice signatures um, have also been listed. Uh, some of these companies are national level companies that the Chinese state sees as competitors to US-based surveillance companies. Others are, are just smaller companies. Now, I know you're in Vancouver and I'm in London, but America seems to be leading the way on this issue. In its final days, the Trump administration uh, announced a ban on all Xinjiang cotton and indeed tomato products from Xinjiang. Doesn't this all boil down to US-China competition? Is this human rights issue being used as a bit of a weapon in a trade war? It may have been to a certain extent during the Trump administration and conservative politicians have used the Xinjiang case as a way of amplifying a, a sort of China threat narrative. Um, the Biden administration is also concerned with the way Chinese state capital could be used to create competitive advantages for Chinese companies, uh, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence. Some of this is being led by um, people within the tech community, like the Google executive Eric Schmidt and Facebook executive or former Facebook executive Peter Thiel. Um, they're really rallying U.S. government to fund U.S. tech firms to counter this China threat. Um, people like Thiel think that the way to counter the threat is to build even more advanced surveillance systems than the Chinese companies. My thinking is that you know, all of us should be deeply concerned with forced labor and technology-led oppression, uh, but we, what we need really is our, our ethical standards in labor to be enforced, and the global community should demand regulation of surveillance. We don't need a new military-industrial complex or a new Cold War, and we don't need more cheap garments made in other places in the world. We just need to push back against this system. I hear a lot of talk about a new Cold War these days. The Russians accuse the Americans of starting a new Cold War. The Americans accuse the Chinese and the Russians of being involved in a Cold War. I'm wondering what impact all this has on the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, I could offer you many quotes in which party officials rail against the West over this issue. It doesn't sound to me as though anyone's apologizing or changing policy, though. No apologies, at least no straightforward apologies, though there are some surface level changes. Uh, Chinese authorities appear to primarily be denying the coercive nature of the labor systems in Xinjiang. They're saying that the camps have been closed, though we know that 
in, in some cases at least, they've simply been renamed as factories or as pre-trial detention centers. Um, they've also inst instigated national campaigns in China to support Xinjiang cotton, uh, which has had some effect as well um, on global brands. So big companies do get caught up in this too, don't they? Can you remind us what happened to the clothing retailer H&M? Yes, uh, in China, the, the slogan support Xinjiang cotton uh, means boycotting companies that relocate their supply chains in order to avoid Xinjiang cotton. And Xinjiang is the source of 85% of, of China's cotton. So almost all cotton is connected to this. Um, H&M was one of the companies that was most directly targeted by this campaign, and they appear to have lost around $70 million in, uh, you know, in 2021 as a result of this boycott. Um, companies risk a backlash in the European marketplace if they continue to work with Xinjiang suppliers and a backlash in China if they relocate. So many companies are, are moving quietly or they're saying that they're moving supply for Western markets. Um, but then we find that the Asian subsidiary of the same company is still sourcing in Xinjiang. Um, so the, the companies are trying to navigate this, still maintain their profits but not raise the ire of, of the Chinese public or the state. That's interesting. 85% of China's cotton comes from this region. Makes me want to look at the labels on my T-shirts. Um, but do you think people actually really care about the source of cotton when they're buying clothes either in, in stores or online? Well, I think the biggest issue around this is that there's a lot of people in Europe and North America who are really politically apathetic and, and don't really care uh, about things that feel far away from them. So that should really be the biggest concern is you're just raising people's awareness and consciousness around this. Among those that do care, I think there's a growing concern. Um, it really hasn't built to the sort of boycott movements of the past. For instance, it hasn't been taken up by public figures in the way that the anti-apartheid movement in the 1980s led to a cultural boycott. Um, there are a number of reasons for this. Perhaps the largest is the economic cost to, to celebrities that they would face if they speak out um, in the Chinese market. And the way that conservative politicians have tied support for Uyghurs to this China threat, um, which in turn is connected to rising anti-Chinese racism. And you know that's something that all of us should be concerned with as well. Um, the problems we have in our domestic politics and, and global problems um, that come from unsustainable business practices, you know, climate change, also distracts um, from a full-throated response to what's happening to the Uyghurs. So who do you think bears the most responsibility here to bring about change in Xinjiang? Consumers, people like me in buying my t-shirts, or is it the multinational companies? Is it foreign governments like the Canadian government or the British government? Or does any of it really make any difference? All these actors bear some responsibility. I, I would especially like to see grassroots movements that, that build solidarity between people who are engaged in anti-colonial and democratic struggles in places like Hong Kong and Taiwan or Southeast Asia, Kashmir and Palestine. Um, you know, if, if we come together around these kinds of issues um, and push trade unions to demand change in corporations and in our governments, um, I think we can start to build a movement. Um, demanding justice for Xinjiang requires a critique of global capital, the global war on terror, and mass surveillance. It demands that crimes against humanity be addressed. 
Chinese authorities and corporations are just now beginning to feel the moral and economic cost of what they've done, um, and it will take all of us to really make truth and reconciliation a reality for Uyghurs. Lastly, I'd like to ask you a more personal question. Can you explain to us how your thinking on this issue has evolved over the past few years? Are you more clear now on what you think the problem is and how governments and businesses should respond? Well, the systems on the ground in Xinjiang have evolved over the years. Um, so my thinking has reflected that. And of course, I've gotten uh, a little bit more distance as well um, to think through it. At first, it was just the camps. Then in, in 2018, we saw the factories being built. Then we learned that 533,000 people, many of them former camp detainees, had been formally prosecuted and sent to prisons. And so there was this mass incarceration element. Um, so my thinking moved from thinking about the technologies that were used to send people to camps and keep them there to the ways that they were being used to hold people in factories and in the, the cotton fields. And I've also begun to uh, become increasingly interested in, in movements around prison abolition and ways of surviving the car carceral systems, and so thinking comparatively. As we've learned about the global supply chains, international investment, technological and police training uh, that have global implications, um, that I think has also really made me want to think about how what's happening in, in Xinjiang has these global implications. We need to have regulation on surveillance and enforcement of coerced labor. Governments and businesses need to do more to support this effort. And, and most importantly, really, we need to support the stateless populations of Uyghurs that are living around the world um, and, and really need our support. Well, thank you, Darren. It's very interesting to hear how your personal and professional perspective on this topic is developing. That was Dr. Darren Byler, an anthropologist and an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University's School for International Studies in Vancouver. And he's about to release a new book called Terror Capitalism, focusing on the lives of men in Xinjiang. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And there are details of our courses and events on our web pages, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.